God, thank you for, once again, for this time. Please help us to um, not be overloaded in our brains and uh, wake up and be able to receive what you want us to receive. God, speak to us uh, through Peter, by your spirit, to help us to um, further submit to who you want us to be in our marriages. Thank you once again, Lord. Amen. We need to talk. You've done something wrong. Okay. I'm toast. Now, I'm not upset. I'm upset. I'm just kind of surprised. I'm a ticking time bomb of volcanic fury. Because you forgot about yesterday? Because you are a moron of epic proportions. Yesterday. Yesterday. I'm toast. Yesterday was the 15th anniversary of our first official date. Oh, that's right. I remember. I have no memory of that. Do I need to get some flowers or something? No. Yes. Are you sure? Yes. No. Are you mad? No. Yes. You'll remember next year. I will. I won't. So how do you like the casserole? It's, uh, it, it's a new flavor. It tastes like the devil ate a skunk sandwich and vomited in my mouth. That's my mom's favorite recipe. I grew up on that. Might as well slap my mother in the face. Well, you know I would never do that. You know I think your mother's wonderful. Actually, I think your mother's a... So... Wanna have sex? How was your day? Wanna have sex? Exhausting. Don't even think about it, you sex maniac. Exhausting, huh? Wanna have sex? Exhausting. I'd rather rub broken glass in my eyes. Do you want to cuddle? Want to cuddle for two seconds, then have sex? My head hurts. You lay one finger on me and I'll beat you with this lamp, you filthy McNasty. Okay. Good night. How about now? You want to have sex now? I don't have one of those. I'd hate to really know what was going on sometimes. Um, we are going to uh, talk about marital communication on the third one. And there are several little activities and things that I want to um, have us do as we go through this last part. Uh, I'm looking for my slides here and see what I got. Oh, there it is coming up. Um, this is full of kind of lots of little tidbitty sorts of information that I want to give you, and I want to drive this to a little video called The Four Horsemen. And um, in your packet, you have the slides, but you also have um, a picture. Let's see, what page is that on? Of The Four Horsemen. Yeah, it looks really cool. That's where we're going for. So some of these things that are up here, these are little bits and pieces of information that I think will be helpful for you. You already have them on the slides. I just kind of want to talk about them. And then get to the video, and then we're going to be giving you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to interact more with your um, spouse during this time. So, um, when we look at communication, 86% of all people that went to marriage counseling indicated that failure to communicate was their main problem. Isn't that interesting? Communication is the issue that people will run into problematically in their own relationship. So, I mean, we've had a lot of fun kind of poking at stuff, but you, you get a sense about that. You live that every day. 
Um, when you take a look at um, this next slide, grab this here, that the major function of the family has shifted. The major function of the family today is more relational than what it has been in the past. By that, people are not getting married so that they can just get more money. They're not getting married so that they can take care of kids. They're not getting married so that they can have a productive farm. What has happened over the last 100 years is that people are getting married because they want a better interactive relationship that fills them up and helps them. And so there's this extra pressure that's put on relationships right now. And part of that pressure then is the quality of the relationship. And communication is a really big element in that quality. Um, In talking about that quality, you have marital satisfaction. And marital satisfaction, this next slide, is is about figuring out if you are really pleased with your spouse. And communication helps you with that. There are three questions that I can ask you to see whether or not you are satisfied with your spouse. So I just want to give them to you. You can kind of think about it. Um, If you're struggling right now, some of the answers to these questions might be no. But people who work in this area can begin to predict how much your marriage is struggling by how many of these you would say no to. The first one is, are you satisfied overall in your marriage? Are you globally satisfied? Secondly, Are you satisfied with your spouse? Are you satisfied with the interactions and relationships you have with your spouse? First of all, are you you satisfied with your marriage overall? Are you satisfied with your house spouse specifically? And the third one is, if nothing were to change, would you be satisfied for the rest of your life? Really huge questions. Are you satisfied with your marriage? Satisfied with your spouse? Are you satisfied if things stay the same? If the answer to those questions are no on all three of them, most people who answer no are headed for either a separation or a divorce. Because in our culture, you have an out once you become unsatisfied with that on a certain level. Once you believe that nothing is really ever going to change, people will actually leave the relationship. And they're making it from the standpoint of this relationship has lost its quality. Now, whether somebody is being selfish or not selfish is topic for another time. But what I want for you to see is marital satisfaction, your own ability to enjoy your relationship is tied to how long you stay married. So here's what I want you to know. In the church, this is the place where you should learn how you can work on issues in order to deal with um, overcoming obstacles. The church should be the safest place for you to work on your stuff. I know it's not always that way, but the church should be the safest place. So for all of you who are church leaders in here, that is one of the challenges that I would lay out for you. Everybody has something they have to work on. Is there a way for people who come to church to expose that in the right environment to get the help that they need? That's the question. I know at our church, we just keep working on this over and over again. We go to Christ Church of Ornogo. We have about 3,000 people. And Mark Christian, our preacher, will stand up and say, the church is the messiest place in the world, and you're, you're safe here. This is a place for you to deal with your issues. And you find somebody or you talk about that with somebody. But we expect that if you are struggling, you need to tell on yourself so that you can end up finding healthiness. One of the reasons for the testimonies up here is so that you can see that regular people have real issues. And this is the kind of place that you can deal with those safely. Can I get an amen? This is the kind of place that you can deal with those safely. 
Because marital satisfaction is so critically important that if you are complaining all the time about your spouse, you're already clicking off some no's of those three questions. And what, what we want to do in a fallen world where things don't hold is to keep moving you forward. And communication is one of those ways to do that. Uh, H. Norman Wright has a communication um, definition that he has put together for us. And it's um, the process, either verbally or non-verbally, of sharing information with another person so that you actually know what the other person is saying. So I'm going to do some nonverbal things up here. You tell me what we traditionally interpret them to be. Mad. Now, if you're in Minnesota and you put your fingers up underneath your armpits where you grew up, it means your hands are cold. Okay, this is hands are cold. This is angry. Now, if I, if I do this. Impatient. Impatient. Yeah, I mean, we, we know what these, and we just do them without ever thinking about them. In certain ways. So you, you are communicating all the time with each other. And as a result, you're constantly reading the other person that you're with. Because you have a baseline. That is, you know what good is and you know what good isn't in your relationship. And you just kind of intrinsically know that. Now, if you don't know that my hands are cold and I just kind of stand like this. And I'm not like laughing or smiling. You're looking at me going, you're giving me two different messages, Buckland. What are you doing? Are you happy? Or are you ticked? Well, because we normally think that this means a particular thing. Um, when you take a look at this, I love this next big mouth right here. I picked that for that right there. It's not a girl thing. It's just I love that mouth right there, that communication. Notice some things about communication that are listed up here. 55% of the communication is considered to be nonverbal. So if your body is saying something different than what your mouth is saying, we're going to believe your body and not your mouth. We're going to believe your body and not your mouth. Peter, are you, are you mad with me? No, I'm not. Liar, liar, pants on fire. So is my marriage on fire. No, I'm not. How many times does our body betray what is actually going on? Because 55% is nonverbal. 35% is tone of voice. This is for you, gentlemen. The number one complaint that women give about the communication they have with their husband is the tone. Women are super sensitive to tone. Can I get an amen, ladies? Amen. Amen. I want you to know that I told my wife, you didn't marry a woman. And I don't know that I have tone. But my tone is mostly intense all the time. I've got my business box. I don't have my marital box. My parents did not have a good marriage. I didn't have good things modeled. Worked really, really hard at trying to figure out how to have a better marriage. But when I get going, I get intense. And I just go right to the point. And my wife gets scared emotionally when that happens because she starts viewing it tonally. And she said to me, if you could just say the word this way. And I finally, after, I don't know, 15 years of hearing that, remember we've married 30 years, I said, I can't say it that way all the time. You have to extend grace to me. And my wife is the kind of a person that runs off of rules and regulations. And she has a really hard time giving herself grace, let alone the person who she expects to be perfect other than herself, which is me. And so when I don't do something the right way, she comes from a long line of historic grudge holders. And she believed that it was okay for her to hold a grudge up until about two years ago, where she was finally confronted by reading some material that she really is a grudge holder. She thought that she was moderately graceful enough, and she didn't have to, like, stop holding grudges entirely, because she comes from a long family of grudge holders, and I didn't realize that, that she was grudge holding. I knew something was off at times, but I didn't realize that grudge holding was off. Guess what one of the biggest things that she would hold a grudge against? 
tone. Tone. So there were times that I just said to her when I was supremely frustrated, well, I, I just can't speak at all. I'm just not going to speak. And she'd go, well, fine. We just can't communicate at all. And we just kind of come to a crashing halt. And I'm like, why are Christian people acting like such babies? Because we're stuck in a sin cycle and we're hurt. That's why. That's what happens to us. We get hurt. Well, tone of voice, ladies and gentlemen, is super, super important. Notice intuitive here. 2% is intuitive. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something to you ladies, and you're going to not all agree with me. Women's intuition is not just something that is to be focused on the details, but is a kind of a generalized women's intuition. You can tell that something is wrong, but please don't say to your husband, I know what you're thinking. Because the minute that you say, I know what you're thinking, he's going to say, uh-uh. You don't know what I'm thinking. Yes, I do. And what I would say to my wife is, you don't, because you would be really, really mad right now if you knew what I was thinking. And what happens is that women sort of project onto each other. But notice only 2% of what you have in communication is actually intuition. You need more details. You can tell something is off, but you can't always tell what it is. Now, I will make one exception. The Holy Spirit communicates to women differently than he communicates to men. And so let me tell you this, ladies, the number one way that you can find out that there's anything that's going on is that you pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you if there's something that's happening to your husband. And usually within a week or two, you will get a specific answer. Why does the Holy Spirit do that? Because you're asked to be in a relationship that is underneath the man who is pledged to be like Jesus. And if he's not being like Jesus, guess who the tattletale is? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tattle to the wife who will then expose it so that it can be healed. Not to get a guy in trouble, but if a guy's doing something that he shouldn't be doing, God's going to not let him get away with that if he says that he loves. And as a result, a woman can use intuition to activate the person of the Holy Spirit to expose what's actually going on. Every man in here should be terribly afraid. If you are doing anything that you should not be doing, the Holy Spirit will want to proclaim it loudly to your wife. It's going to let that settle in on your bones. If you're doing anything that you should not be doing, the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to expose it. Because your wife is there to say, do you really want to act that way? Because you might not be able to keep this relationship. Because this relationship is not founded on anybody doing whatever they want to do. It goes the other way also, but it seems as though men can get locked down a little bit more easily. And then 8% is the actual words used. That was me. I was relating to my wife with the 8% of actual words. Now, here's, gentlemen, I want you to know this. Women use words as kind of poetic license, that they will just sort of say something, and it doesn't really mean literally what, what they mean. And so when I really started to discover this, I was really confused because I, I, my wife would come home from work, and I would say, hey, how was your day? And she would say, it was horrible. And I'd be projecting what horrible means to me. Here's what horrible means. Well, I, I got called into the president's office. I've been put on probation. Um, you know, there was somebody, some really bad incident that happened, and a student just kind of screamed and yelled and carried on, and I didn't act very well, and I'm, like, in big trouble. That's what horrible means to me. And so I just was like, oh, my goodness, what happened today? And she's a public school teacher, teaches fourth grade, and she looked at me with all of the sincerity and seriousness in her eyes, and she said... They talked too much. That was horrible. Have you ever heard of the word muzzle? Horrible. Well, my wife had gotten on her last emotional straw 
And that last emotional straw broke the camel's back. And she's back there going, I have to listen to this chatter all the time. And I'm thinking, you're a girl. You like chatter. You like talking. You like doing that. And she is using this to simply say this. I am in distress. That's what it means. Remember, a woman doesn't always say what a woman means. Because you can't always find the right words for that. And so I started to learn that words are a way to try to get at the real meaning. And sometimes my wife really meant what the words said, 8% of the time, maybe. But the rest of the time was sort of like, I need to learn her code. So my wife speaks a unique language. I call it Vanese. Vanese. I speak more English than Peterese. She speaks more Vanese than English if you know what I'm talking about. And so she uses language to try to help me to understand her. Remember, a woman wants to be found through everything that she's doing. And when she says it was a horrible experience for me, what she doesn't want me to do is make a list of how not to make it horrible. Because that's what I immediately do. Well, here's what you do is you send this kid to ISS and you talk to the other person about this and you call these parents and you tell them to knock it off and you just have have moments of silence and you just kind of go through this and, and this will solve your horribleness. Because what does a man want more than anything else? Peace. I don't want horribleness in my family. I want to kill horribleness, maim horribleness, get rid of horribleness, and have it be uh, stopped. And she's looking at me going, I, this is not the problem. And I'm going, it is the problem because it's horrible. And what she's saying is you missed the point. And so what she wants me to do is find her through all of that. And horrible is the key to unlock the door in order to find out what's behind door number horrible. That's what that is. And if I jump on it as a guy and solve her problems because it's horrible, what I'm actually doing is I'm not even getting in the room where she's living. And I figured that out finally because I'm dense male syndrome. It took me 18 years to figure that out. I'm very slow because I believe words mean what words mean. I'm a counselor. I, words mean what words mean on some level. People communicate in a certain kind of a way. But I forgot that my wife isn't just anybody. She's my wife. And she doesn't even have to use language and I'm supposed to find her. And so as a result, when you look at this here, when you put it all together, one of the things I do want you to pray about is, God, help me to understand the language of my spouse. Because we use English as a launching pad into what the real message is. A launching pad into the message. So when you're looking at how to communicate, what I want for you to do is actually know that you have all kinds of license to communicate any way that you want to. But your spouse needs to understand it. So ladies, here's what I want you to know. If your husband doesn't understand something, for example, when I would walk home and I would, or I'd come home, I'd walk in the door and I would pray and say, Lord, help me to get in that transition. I'd say, hi, honey, how are things going? You know, is everything okay? And she would just say, yeah, they're all right. And I knew something was off and I'd say, is, is everything, I would say, well, what's wrong? And she would say nothing. And I would say, okay. And I would leave her alone and just let it go. Because nothing means nothing, zero. And what she was saying was that she was speaking code. I, I figured out that it meant one of seven things. I don't know that I can repeat them all right now because I've kind of forgotten them. It means I'm ready to slay the children. Um, work was really, really bad. I'm angry about something from last week that you did that I haven't talked to you about yet. Um, I'm really stressed out about money. I got bad news from family or something at work. Um, there's something that needs to be fixed that's really kind of... Um, that needs to be attended to, and um, I don't feel very well. That's what nothing means. That's way too complicated for me. I would just like to say, I don't feel good, or, you know, the car still needs to be fixed, or the running toilet is driving me crazy. I mean, that's the way I communicate with that. And she would say, nothing. And I would leave her alone. 
Because I thought that's what she wanted. Because guess what happens when I say nothing is wrong? I want you to stop asking me if anything is wrong. I want you to leave me alone. She's handing me the key to fit into the lock that would open up the door to find out that nothing really is a whole bunch of something on the inside, which is why we joke about the way that people communicate up here. You need to learn your spouse's code. So if you feel misunderstood, you have to explain your code. That's one of your tasks over the next two or three weeks is make sure that your spouse really understands your code. Well, I want to show you this video from John Gottman. John Gottman is a researcher out in California who has put together a lot of really good material about how couples can stay together. And he has spent a lifetime trying to research why couples fail. And he has identified four main styles of communication that people use. He calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And any time that any one of these communication styles is used, a negative result will happen you will find yourself up here. I just want to warn you. It's not picking on anybody. You will find yourself up here. Because in a fallen world, I mean, Gottman is Jewish, um, so he has a position of faith. But in a fallen world, sin has infected us in a greater way than what we really realize. And we can get a little bit sloppy at times. And one of these four horsemen can come galloping through our relationship. What I want for you to think about is what what are these horsemen and can you identify their use? Can you identify how you use them? I don't want you to point at your spouse and go, yeah, this is what you do. I want you to look in the mirror and go, how do I use this? And then secondly is, which is way more important is, can I repair the relationship? When I use one of these horsemen or when one of these horsemen come through galloping through my marriage, can I actually be a part of reconciliation? That's the, the more important point is how do I overcome any kind of anger associated with interactions that I don't like. So take a look. It's about nine minutes long. Take a look at this from John Gottman. And that was true. We were really getting paid to watch couples deteriorate and, uh, and making a living at it. And so we really did a series of research studies uh, trying to look at the masters of relationships, the ones you know, who really stayed together, didn't get divorced, and were pretty happy, more or less. And the disasters of relationships, the ones that broke apart, and uh, the ones that stayed together and were unhappy as well. And uh, we really were able to study couples across the whole life course. In fact, we're just completing a study in the Bay Area now that we started 20 years ago with two groups of couples, a group of couples in their 40s and a group of couples in their 60s. Uh, and our oldest subjects are now in their late 80s. So we're just finishing this. And across the whole life course, we've, we've looked at transitions to becoming parents, what happens when a baby arrives in the relationship, how does it affect the relationship, how do relationships affect babies, uh, can we predict anything about child development, and, uh, and we found to our great surprise that we could predict as we followed couples over many, many years um, with over 90% accuracy what would happen to a marriage. Even from the first three minutes of our conflict discussion a couple is having, we can predict 96% of the time how the entire conversation will go. And from the conversation, we can predict with high accuracy uh, whether a couple get divorced or not, how happy they'll be, and, in fact, one of my graduate students, Alison Shapiro, who studied couples in the last trimester of pregnancy, uh, was able to predict the child's temperament uh, 
and the child's neurological development and reduce 50% of the uncertainty in looking at the first three years of the baby's life just by looking at how the parents argued in the last trimester. So I want to take you through knowing our 35 years of research in which our first question was, could we find any patterns that discriminated the masters from the disasters of relationships? And second, what theory could we develop to understand those patterns? And only when we developed that theory uh, were we able to design interventions to help people. And so these are all scientifically based interventions. What discriminated the disasters from the masters of relationships was that the masters were really very gentle with one another, even when they raised an issue. They raised it as if it was kind of an invisible soccer ball that they were kicking around together. They took responsibility for even a small part of the problem. Uh, whereas the disasters really pointed their finger at their partner and were critical, and their attitude was that they were kind of diagnosing their partner's personality defects. And they wanted to be really appreciated for that by their partner. And, and they were hoping that their partner would respond by saying, thank you for pointing out all the ways in which I am failing as a human being. Can we have lunch next Tuesday so we can talk about this some more? You are such a wise person, John. You know, thank you so much. Unfortunately, criticism, which is stating the problem in the relationship as a defect in the partner, leads to the, the second predictor we have of what predicts relationships demise with defensiveness and defensiveness is any way of warding off a perceived attack but unfortunately the masters do the opposite they say interesting that's an interesting point tell me more about what you see as our problem and how I contribute to this the disasters become defensive and say it's not my fault it's your fault and they raise something that's a counterattack rather than responding by saying, interesting point, tell me more. Uh, or they whine. You know, they, they, uh, they, they present themselves as an innocent victim. So we saw a pattern in the way conflicts begin. And our best predictor of, rel of relationship demise was a behavior we call contempt, which is any statement you make to your partner from a superior place. And if you think you're more punctual than your partner, more intelligent, more knowledgeable about something, or a better parent, or cleaner, or tidier, then usually what you say is really speaking down and has an air of superiority. The most common way we found was direct insults and name-calling, calling people a jerk and an idiot, saying what they're saying is ridiculous. But one of my favorite ones is correcting somebody's grammar when they're angry with you. I think that's a really effective way of being contemptuous. So if my wife says, I could care less about that, uh, I would say, hold on there, honey. It is not I could care less. It is I couldn't care less. That's the right way to say it. Now, what was your point? Okay, so it's one of my favorite ways. So contempt is our best predictor of divorce and breakup in same-sex relationships as well. And also a predictor of how many infectious illnesses in the next four years the recipient of contempt will get. So it's been shown that contempt is a very wide spectrum uh, down regulator of, immu of immune functioning. The, the final uh, 
predictor of, that discriminates the masters from the disasters during conflict we call stonewalling, which is basically listener withdrawal from the conflict. And the stonewaller basically doesn't give the usual cues that a listener gives, like head nodding, eye contact, uh, brief vocalizations, uh, yeah, and facial movement. Yeah, uh, that could be, yeah, sure. Oh, interesting, yeah. The stonewaller is really tuned out, like a stone wall. But when we try to predict stonewalling from our data, from our stream of interaction, we found that an elevated heart rate, heart rate above the intrinsic rhythm of, of the heart, around 100 beats a minute, predicts stonewalling. So we interviewed stonewallers about these moments in their interaction, and it turned out what they were trying to do was really calm down and not make the interaction worse. So the internal monologue of a stonewaller was something like this. Okay, just don't say anything. <laughs> Let her burn herself out. How long can this last? <laughs> 10 minutes to the game. She can't touch me then, you know. That was the hope anyway of the stonewaller. And what the now, did the masters, the guys who are in master relationships stonewall, they did, but they were able to self-soothe physiologically. Now, so we had these basic findings that, that discriminated the masters from the disasters, but they didn't help us in understanding it. By putting together the data that we had, looking at couples over long periods of time, we discovered that one of the most important discriminators between the masters and disasters of relationships was the ability to repair interaction. That, in fact, in all relationships, regrettable incidents and arguments that go out of control and hurting your partner's feelings are inevitable. And one of the contributions Bob and I wound up making was that we wound up studying really good relationships. And before this research, therapists really had to fantasize about what a good relationship would be like. Uh, Oprah Winfrey hasn't had one, for example. Uh, and, you know, Dr. Phil just got divorced. So, you know, we don't know. These guys don't really know what a good relationship is like from their own experience. And we were able to do that by doing research on good relationships. And every relationship experiences conflict and periods of alienation. And, but the difference between the masters and the disasters is they're able to repair. And so repair turns out to be really the sine qua non of relationships. Being able to say, I'm really sorry. Um, you know, I blew it that time. You know, that didn't go very well. Can we talk about it? And what we thought was that maybe the way the repair was made would make, the, would make an enormous difference. And for, so, for several years, we looked at the nature of repair, and we discovered that we were looking in the wrong place. It was really the recipient of repair that was the important person to look at. And what made the difference in repair working and being effective was the quality of the friendship in the relationship. Not looking at conflict, but looking at how people maintain friendship and intimacy and emotional connection. It's about the way people create a sense of shared meaning and purpose. Because when people start to have a committed relationship, they are really not just having a relationship with one another that's romantic, that has conflict, but they're really building a life together, a life with meaning and purpose and mission and legacy and culture and values. And unless they have the conversations they need to have that make those uh, meanings intentional and shared, 
then they go through life really not building this very important existential part of their connection together. And that's pretty much everything I know about relationships. So I'll stop there. Thank you for listening. Okay, in case you didn't get those written down, the first one is criticism on the upper left-hand side, criticism. Second one is defensiveness. Third one is contempt. And the fourth one is stonewalling. Criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. Criticism is stating the problem as a defect in your partner. Defensiveness is some kind of a counterattack. Contempt is a position of superiority. And stonewalling is listener withdrawal, where you're pulling out. Now, many of you that have been around the church a long time are familiar with a concept that is taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And in this passage, Paul says that you and I are no longer old people, but we are new creatures. That Christ has come in and he has changed us and, and made us different. And then he goes on and he says that you are made in, you, you are given then the ministry of reconciliation. And I want to stop here just in a moment, for a moment and give you the Christian version of what Dr. Gottman was talking about when he said that it is the ability to be friends that repairs the relationship. This is what he called the sine qua non, which means without this, it's impossible to repair the relationship. What they found was the Christ image in every marriage. And it kind of goes like this. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and God heaped upon him the punishment that we would rightly deserve, and people came alongside and they heaped more insults on top of him. In fact, Mark Christian told us something on Sunday that I had never really heard before. And that was the sponge that was dipped in vinegar that was put up to Jesus's mouth was the same kind of sponge that was used to clean the rear ends of rich people when they um, went to the bathroom. That a servant would have a sponge on the end of a stick and he would clean the bottom of a rich person. And that sponge and that vinegar was the same sponge and vinegar to clean somebody's bottom that was put up to Christ's mouth. After that was done, you have the words, it is finished. It's done. We're finished. That is like the final act of degradation right there on Christ. So here he is on the cross. Some people believe naked, maybe just six inches above the ground. Some people believe naked, suspended higher in the air. People hurling insults at him. And he takes all of that horribleness. And then what does he do with us? He hands back friendship. That is, that is reconciliation. That is the redemption of a marriage. When my wife lays it on me for whatever reason, justifiably so or un, unjustifiably so, and, and we get off or there's something that happens that is painful and I am being the Christ figure because the person who takes it is the Christ figure. The way that you are Repaired is not to retaliate, but the way that you are repaired is to offer friendship back. Isn't that amazing? That is the ministry we are all called to. Before you are an employee at a business, before you are a cashier at Walmart, before you're a preacher at a church, 
before you are a Sunday school teacher, before you are a farmer, before you are an educator, you are a reconciler. That's what you are. And people heap insults on you. And people don't treat you the right way. And like Christ, who took all of that, we hand back friendship. This is the secret to the engine of a long-term marriage. Right here. This is what you're seeing. If you want to stay married for a really long time, you've got to get your expectations in line. Expectation number one is you will be hurt. Expectation number two, sometimes you will be hurt on purpose. Expectation number three, you cannot avoid being hurt. Expectation number four, you will have better times and worse times in your marriage. Expectation number five, you will be hurt. Expectation number six, you will not get what you want all the time. Expectation number seven, your spouse will annoy you more times than you would really care to count. Expectation number eight, you will be hurt. Are you seeing a pattern here? We live in a world where things don't work the right way and we expect perfection in our selfishness. That's why we get into so much trouble. And when difficulty comes, as Christian people, we take it and we hand back friendship. I will spend an entire lifetime learning what that means. What that means for me to hand back friendship to my wife and hand back friendship to my children and hand back friendship to the congregational members as an elder of the church, to hand back friendship to my students, to hand back friendship to the administrators, to hand back friendship to the IRS tax people, to, to hand back friendship to people who are annoying me in some way. That is the mark of a Christian. That is what it means to lay down your life and to love. Is that we're going to hand back friendship. We're going to take it and hand back friendship. And this is what Gottman says. You will have these four horsemen that run through your marriage. And your job is to hand back friendship. Not to retaliate, not to get on your horse and get it all going up and traipse all over the other person. I think this is one of the reasons we need each other. Because I like my horses. I don't know about you. There are times I think it's justified to get on my little steed of contempt and go out and contemptify everybody because I am angry about something and I know I'm smarter. I know that I am better. I know that I can go out and right all the wrongs and get on my steed and go fix everything and slaughter the, the people that need to be slaughtered and, and save the day. And by the time that I run my steed of contempt all the way through, what I have left is a sea of desolation behind me. Because I cannot ride that animal in righteousness and holiness. I have to stay off of it. But I want to get on it so bad. I want it so bad. This is the dilemma that we have in our marriage. And so one of the elements that I want you to take from this, from this point right here, is what do you want to do to learn how to hand back friendship? It's not a matter of whether or not you're going to be hurt, because you will. It's not, a matter about whether, it's not a matter of whether or not you're going to be angry, because you will. It's not about whether or not something happens the way that you want it to because it won't. It just won't. You have to have the right expectations in a fallen world. But the right expectations is I want to be friends with my wife at the end of the day. So how do I be friends with my wife when we get off? So here are some things for you to take a look at in failures to communicate. Some things to just pay attention to as you look through. And then I'm going to give you guys a chance to... Um, Speed ahead here and talk about some things. Failures to communicate. Here are some things that you want to try to avoid doing. Framing a response while the other person is talking. This is at the bottom or the second page after. No, is it on here? No, is it on here? No, is it on? Yeah, 13. Thank you. I didn't manage. I didn't uh, write all these things out. 13. Um, 
stop thinking about what you're going to say and listen. Um, second one is failure to engage the listener before talking. Ladies, this is why it's so important for you to get your husband's attention is that he's in his box or he's in his nothing box. And if he's in his nothing box and you start talking, guess what box he's in? He's in his nothing box. He's not in his wife box. You have to actually come up and you have to say, Peter, and then he can like slam that box shut and open up the next box. But if you just start talking and in the middle of your sentence, you say, and isn't that right, Peter? I'm going, what? What are you talking about? Because I'm in my nothing box right here. Um, Vanna is ready to talk all the time. So I can just kind of pick up a conversation with her, generally speaking, because her brain works differently than my brain does. But there are times that I actually have to ask her, if you want to talk to me, like if, I'm, if I want to be close to her, because men don't like to be alone, they like to be close to people, is that if I'm grading papers or I'm really focusing on a research paper or something and I'm trying to take all the other elements away, but I want to be close to my wife, and Vanna just starts talking to me on top of that, those are moments where we could really be frustrated with each other because I can't just stop grading the research paper and give her my full attention because I have to close my research paper grading box and open my wife box. I mean, I'm handicapped here. I am mentally handicapped. I can't do it fast enough. And the older I get, the slower the boxes open and close. Ladies who are married to older men, can I get an amen? The slower the boxes open and close, they kind of wear out. And as a result of that, I can sound really impatient with the woman who I love because she wants to tell me something and I'm in the middle of doing something else. And so I've just said to her, okay, I'm, I'm going into grading. And so I'm not going to make, I actually told us I'm not going to make the transition so well. I just, a warning. It's not, I don't want to make an excuse. It just simply means if I'm really focusing on something and you start talking to me about the garbage, I'm going to not make that transition very gracefully. While I'm in the middle of doing a research paper, it means I may have to not be around you when I grade papers, but I want to be around you. And so trying to figure out these mechanisms are really, really important for us. And so I just say, just call me by name or say, hey, I really want to talk to you about this. I can actually finish what I'm doing. Remember what I'm writing, because if I'm writing something, I don't want to stop in the middle of a paragraph, but I do want to talk to my wife. I mean, we, we actually get down to the nitty gritty about how can this work in those times. Most of the time we don't have to do this. But we don't ever fight over those times. We fight over the times that I'm in the middle of something and I can't make the transition very well. And then I start to sound impatient. Sound impatient. I don't want to be that way because I'm like, I really do want to communicate well. So uh, failure to, to engage. Number three is the silent treatment. Don't, don't pull away and expect your partner to come chasing after you and trying to make it right. Because the silent treatment generally is interpreted as leave me alone. And generally people will. Uh, next slide. Lack of clarity in the message. That's actually a picture of a city up there that you can see. And you can't see it because it's foggy. It's a lack of clarity. And so if you get confused, stop and say, can you say that again for me? Because I'm having trouble really kind of connecting with what you're saying. And, and it's not that you're speaking it so unclearly. It's that I can't read all the code and I can't, I, I don't have the context for it. And I don't, I'm not really getting the message and it's okay. So can you kind of back up and talk to me about it a little bit more? Uh, the next one is failure to take the time. The more intimate you want to have, uh, the more intimate the conversation is you need to have. Let me say it that way. The more intimate the conversation that you need to have, the more time you need to take. You can't have a super intimate conversation on the way to the grocery store. Stop, go do groceries and pick it up again. You need a longer period of time. And so you may actually have to save some time. For those of you that have lots of little kids, it means I know when we did this, we had lots of conversations at night, which were the most ineffective time for us to have conversations. 
And so we'd have to close the conversation by a certain time because my wife is a morning person and I'm a night person and her brain would start to flitz on out and she would actually sort of like drop and start falling asleep somewhere around like 9.30 or 10. She can wake up between 4 and 5 every morning without an alarm clock. She's a milker. I mean, she was made to get up and do the cattle at eight or, or at 4 or 5 in the morning. Her body is just that way. She comes from a farm family and they would just do that. She can't stay up. But we don't get up at the same time. Um, and so by the time that we get up, I can't communicate all that well. By, by the time the evening goes, she can't communicate that very well. Those were kind of stressful communication times. And we had all those little kids that always needed us. And those were rougher marital times because we couldn't take the time to communicate all the things that we wanted to. Some of you are in that time period right now that when you have little kids, it puts a stress on the marriage. So you've got to fight for the time to get things done. This next one is a failure to adequately, honestly express your own personal feelings. This is I statements. These are, this is what is happening to me. Don't be saying, don't do that, or you always do this. Say, this is what's happening to me. I'm feeling frustrated about my schedule. I'm feeling like we're losing our connection. I'm feeling like um, we are not able to spend as much time together, and I want to figure out what we can do to solve that. And this last one that's on here is jokers, always laughing, always carrying on and not being very, very serious. Um, on, I didn't pick this up for you, so let me know where this is. It's got um, the five love languages um, that is in the middle of a page. Five love languages, words of affirmation, physical touch, somewhere right in there. What page is that on? 15, thank you. Page number 15. Um, I would like for you as couples to stop right now and do something. Some of you may have done this already. Something that's really nice and easy that I want you to build some strategies on for when you go home. And this first one is to take a look at these five love languages that Gary Chapman talks about in his book, The Five Love Languages. And I've listed it out a little differently than what some people will want to um, think about this. There are two categories under him and her, and I forgot to put give and receive. So write give and receive underneath those um, somewhere under him and her. There are two categories. A man, we'll start with a him. A man will give certain things and he will receive certain things. And I want you to mark down what it is that you like to give and receive. Here's why. I like to give gifts and um, I like to see, give gifts and um, give acts of service. I like to receive um, time together as my primary one, time together. My wife likes to receive words of affirmation, which doesn't even make it on my chart. And she likes to show her love by serving, which keeps her busy so we don't spend time together. We are uniquely situated to think we don't love each other. You may be in the same boat. My wife wants to know how much I think about her and how much I feel about her, which I have this kind of block to do because I grew up in a family that we didn't do that. So words of affirmation is actually the, the lowest thing that I have been able to do. And I want to spend a lot of time with my wife doing things. Well, my wife wants to do the laundry and do the shopping and clean the house and make sure the towels are folded correctly and, you know, vacuum stuff and put everything in order and have the whole house in order. And that's the way that she wants to love me because she comes from a family that loves by putting everything in order. And that kind of makes sense to her. So when she's doing all of those things and she thinks she's loving me, I think she's ignoring me because I want, to, I want her to stop. And do something with me. And I can't tell you how many times. I don't want you to think this is bad about my wife. But we love each other differently. She would say, well, I have laundry to do. 
I don't care about the laundry. Well, I care about the laundry. Well, Peter, you obviously don't care. You know, you obviously don't love me because you don't care about the laundry. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm now in trouble. I don't even know how I got there. Because she's saying, I'm loving you, and you don't want me to love you? What is wrong with you, Peter? You don't want me to love you. I'm going, I want you to love me this way. And she's going, no, you don't, you don't need to love that way. You need love by clean laundry. You need to smell good and look good. That's how I know that you love me. I don't want to sit and talk to you and, you know, go on a hike with you. And, you know, that's just exercise for me because it's not getting anything done productively. When we finally figured this out, we, we ended a lot of our emotional assumptions that were wrong. Because we are, well, I, would, I would go on a trip somewhere and I'd bring her home a gift and she'd go, oh, thanks. And she'd put it on over somewhere. I'm going, that represents that I thought of you and loved you. And she's going, that represents something I have to dust. <laughs> then dust it, but like it. I stopped buying her clothes because I, I like to buy her. I look at something, oh, man, you'd look really great. And then I bring it home and she'd go, eh, yeah, okay. And then she would never wear it. I don't buy her jewelry. I don't buy her clothes. I don't bring home gifts for her anymore. I feel like I'm really handicapped. What she wants is a gift card. That is so terribly impersonal because I'm a gift giver. And then about three years ago, my wife said, you know, you don't really get me really cool gifts anymore. Because you hate my gifts. And she said, no, I really like them. I said, then your face has to show it. I am loving everybody else with gifts. And guess what my wife feels? Left out. I don't think that we're that unusual in a group this size. That we're loving each other in ways that the other one doesn't connect with readily. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take just two or three minutes as a couple. And I want you to list out how you like to give love and how you like to receive love. So words of affirmation are words where you say to somebody, this is what I really like about you and this is what I appreciate. Physical touch is actually being close to each other and holding hands or putting your arm. This is not sexual um, by nature of the question, but physically, actually um, being close and touching. Gift giving is buying something for the other person and surprising them. Time together is actually doing an interaction that the other person likes. Television viewing doesn't really count unless the person who loves to spend time wants to watch a favorite show with you. So you're actually interacting in some way. And then acts of service are getting done the things that really need to be done. So take a couple minutes and just say, I like to give this and I like to receive this. And we're going to build some strategies for you to go home based on what we're talking about to move your marriage forward. I want you to add one thing to your conversation. Um, I want you to say to your spouse, this is what I really like when you do it. And I want you to pick something that your spouse hasn't done for a while. Not to criticize that it's been gone, but something that you like that might not have happened for a while. Here's why. You always build strategies on strengths. Always. So if you want to move forward, one of the best ways to move forward is to keep all the right ingredients going. Keep the things in your relationship that you really like. And you may have found that you've gotten really, really busy and there's something that you have really liked that you have done that you have not done for a while. And I would like for you to identify that. Something that you like and say, I, Peter Buckland, like it when Vanna and I do this. It might not even be on Vanna's radar because it might not be something that she particularly resonates with. But what I want you to do is to say, I really like it when we can do this. And I want you to come up with one or two 
things that you will do within the next week or two. So, you know, if you like to go on a world vacation and you haven't done it for five years, there may be a reason you didn't do it for five years. But there can be those other things that are really meaningful to you from leaving notes to the way that you sit next to each other in church. I know Vanna would love it if I would go to church with her because I go early. I'm an elder and I go early. And I haven't, we have not gone to church together for years. That bugs me probably more than it bugs her. But if she said, I'd really like to go to church with you sometime, guess what I would do? I would either go do my prayer time and come home and get her, or I would just skip the prayer time. Why? Because my wife is important enough to say, I want to connect with you that way. But I might miss it because it doesn't hit my radar because of our, our current structure. So I want you to think, what do I like that we haven't had to happen for a while that is good for the two of us that I would like to say I'd really like for us to do this once or twice? And then... I'd like to do a couple of these things, and I want you to see where it fits on the chart. I mean, is this words of affirmation thing? Is this a doing something together? Is this, you know, uh, serving people in some way? I want you to think about this, and I want to give you a couple of minutes to go, okay, if we leave from here, here's something that we can agree that we would really like to see happen in the next couple of weeks. Go ahead. Okay, I want you to add one more thing while you're in this mode. I want you to pick one or two things that you would like to do over the next year that is bigger that you would like to do. If you can figure this out now, that's great. If you can't, that's okay. But you may have put something off or there might be something that you have talked about. Oh, wouldn't it be really great if we could? Um, And I'd like for you to talk about that. Um, here's, Here's one of the things that I'm thinking about. My wife has said on more than one occasion that she would like to get a new refrigerator. A refrigerator is high on her list because what's one of her gift giving or what's one of her ways to love people is service. And the refrigerator is the door that opens and closes the most in the whole house. And she has found our refrigerator to be repulsive in some fashion. It still works. It's white. It's kind of small. One of the shelves is finally kind of broken, but we can kind of put it up there in just the right way so it works. She's told me I can't get all of the mold off. I said, really, you can't get all the mold off of those little things that are, you know, that little seal stuff that's there. And I just checked it and most of the mold was off. So she figured out a way to get most of the mold off. She said about three or four times. Now you can't tell her that I'm thinking this because this needs to be my, you know, knight in white shining armor when I go home is um, I'm thinking that because she said it like four or five times recently, this is the way that a woman says something's important to her gentlemen. So, you know, you don't have to be thinking what has she said repetitively, but she would really like a new refrigerator. And we can save up for that new refrigerator uh, because she really wants to do that. And what do I want more than anything else in a family? A new refrigerator. That's what I want. Yeah, I do. And what is the other person saying? What is the other person meaning? What is important to the other person? And I I suggested to Vanna that we might want to do a couple things. And and she actually said, well, I'd really like to replace this floor. And I'd really like to get a new refrigerator. And I want to replace the couches that the kids' friends have broken. And I'd like to do something before we do something else. But the fact that the refrigerator came up again, that thing just won't go away. I am dumb. I am dense male. I don't always get it. But eventually, the light comes on. Here's what I want for you to do. I'd really like for you to say, what is it that we would really like to do that maybe we could do in the next year or so? I mean, you don't have to make a final decision. And here's what I want you to know. Just because you're talking about it now doesn't mean you're not going to change your mind. 
Okay, because something can happen. But I want you to start thinking, all right, how do we weave our life and our relationship together in such a way that we're having the kind of experiences that we would like to have as a couple? That's what I want for you to think about. And so I'd like for you to think of something that's longer range in a couple of weeks and just say, is there something that's hanging out there that we could really put on the calendar or we could really make as a goal and get it done in some period of time um, as we are able to do that? That's what I'd like for you to think about right now. How do we take something that we already see is a need or something that we would like to accomplish and actually put that a little bit higher so we could both work on it? Now, if you can't make a decision then say, let's keep talking about this over the next week or two. Because I don't want to put anybody on the spot to think, oh my goodness, we have to do this now. Um, Because my wife is the kind of a person that if I say I'm going to do it, it's going to take an act of the Pope and nuclear holocaust to get it off the list. Because she holds on to it. And so I've learned to say, "Let's, let's keep talking about this. So you know your partner, you know yourself. I'm not asking you to make a final decision. So if you're the kind of person who's a final decision person then don't talk that way at the table. This is you talking through what can we kind of do to build on the strengths in order to get our marriage, our relationship, moving more and more in the direction and keep it going in the way that I want. So let me give you a couple more minutes. I want you to just kind of brainstorm. Is there something that you can do that you've been wanting to do or would like to do, Um, whether it's something with the house, whether it's a trip somewhere, whether it's doing something with the kids, whether that's just treating yourself in some way that you can do within the next year or so. That will cost you a little bit more that won't stress you out if you save up for it in some way. That's what I want you to do. Hey, if you would go ahead and wrap up this part of your discussion. Everything just kind of went. That's good. Good wrap up. Hey, I want to give you some of the main points. As we're kind of closing in, we have 10 minutes left with my presentation here. I want to give you some of the highlights. So, gentlemen, I want to start with you. Here are some of the things that hit the top of the list that I want to present to you to think about doing. So you might want to jot these down um, if you haven't jotted them down already. In order of priority. Okay, from my standpoint, when I present all of this information to you, These would be like the first dominoes. If you do these kinds of things first, then you're going to be able to get a better bang for your buck, so to speak, if I could talk in male language. Number one is to pray for and over your spouse. Learn to do that. That is the number one thing because you are in a position of spiritual leadership when you do that. So praying for her every day, uh, maybe even praying for her in the morning and the evening, Asking her what can you pray about for her and just spend time praying about it and then listening to her without trying to solve problems. Just listen and pray and say, Lord, you're here. This is what we're talking about. Would you help us figure this out? So the number one thing is praying. Number two, if you, do, if you don't know when to talk to her, use the three strikes and we're having a conversation. Something happens and you notice that you're kind of off and you want to be able to get you back on track and you don't want to fight, then you can say, or you can even say it right away, it seems like we're a little bit off on our communication. Now, I know that that's Peter language. You might not speak that way. But the point is that you're noticing with your wife that there's a strain in the relationship. And what you're really asking is, would you talk to me about it? 
You notice this. Can we talk about the strain that's going on? And your job is to listen even if it's hard for you. Okay, your job is not to really respond back, but to listen. Here's the heart of a woman. A woman wants to say things to you and know that you've connected with her, but she doesn't want you to really do anything about it. So secondly, after you listen, you ask her, is there anything that I can do to help you? Is there anything I can do to help you? I would say 9.9 times out of 10, she's going to say, no, thanks for listening, and she's going to be fine. And if you have the wrong um, expectation, you could end up being frustrated because you want to do something, because you want to help her, because a man wants this more than anything else, peace. And it seems as though an agitated wife, if I could just help you never to be agitated again, that would be wonderful. But the problem is that she's going to be agitated again tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Because we live in a world that she feels it. And what she needs to do is deposit it somewhere where she knows you're okay with her after she deposits it. So if she can just talk about things and know she's connecting with you, then actually together you can kind of figure out some things. But if you do the man thing and go, you know, all she ever does is really talk to me. I have no idea what she's talking about. You're missing the whole point. She's building a relationship with you conversationally. You want her to be attached to you, don't you? Correct answer is yes. You want her to talk to you and love you more than anybody else. Yes, yes. Um, But you need some skills to take it and just kind of let it kind of flow over you so that you don't feel like you have more to do. Ladies, what I want you to know, when you talk that way, we feel like we have to do something. That's why we get frustrated. It automatically goes on our doing list. We figure out something to do as a result of hearing that. And so I want to free every man from ever having to do anything again, listening to his wife just kind of talk about the day until you as a couple figure out that there is something that needs to be done. So take some of those cues from your wife. So you've got this pray together. You've got this three strikes and we'll have a conversation. Number three, gentlemen, when you pull back, you go into your nothing box. You go into your nothing box to find the support that you need. So when you're quiet or you're, you're passive or you just are overwhelmed in some way, when you leave your nothing box, you go find your wife. You don't ignore your wife. You retreat in order to figure out what you need to do and you go find your wife and you offer her the support that you want for her to have. You want her to know that you would pick her again and you're happy to be married to her. Even if you're going through a rough time, you you know that you want to support her in some fashion. So you leave the nothing box. You come in from mowing the lawn. You you pull away and you, you do whatever it is that you're going to do. But you're praying and saying, Lord, I need to interact with my wife when I'm done. Because I've pulled away. If you pull away, she's going to view that as negative, perhaps. Because she doesn't want you to pull away. She wants you to come to her. And as a result, she can misunderstand your intention. So if you just say, hey, let me just give, give me a little bit of time to think about this. Give me a little bit of time to just ask the Lord for some direction about this. And I will talk to you here after I kind of get my head about me. That's man language. And it just simply means I really want to say something, but I don't know what to say. Retreat to find support. And then ladies, let them have some time. Don't, don't say, are you ready to talk to me yet? Because the answer, I promise you, will be no. He feels pushed. Feels pushed. But gentlemen, you can't have too much time go by because she's going to have a hard time waiting because she really wants to know how you're doing. So if you can put up with that kind of tension, that's going to be really good. Um, the fourth one that I would tell you, gentlemen, so you got pray together, three strikes or three times and we'll talk, retreat to support. And the fourth one is listen to themes rather than details. 
Listen to themes rather than details. Because the details can wear you out. Because remember, you got all those boxes opening and closing. Just let her talk. And when she's done talking, say to her, is, is there one thing or two things out of all the things that you've said that really are the most important that you want me to really pay attention to? And it's not like I don't want to pay attention to anything else. It's that help me focus my mind. Because I am interested in you, but I know that listening to you, it all sounds equally important to me. But I know for you, something might be really, really important. But I can't tell what's more important. I I can't tell you how many times I've guessed the wrong thing. It doesn't have to do with how much time a woman spends talking about something. It has to do with her emotional intensity about that particular topic. And so she might talk about things, spend more time talking about things that are less important to her, and you'll miss it because we assume that whatever she talks the most about, that's what she's the most concerned about. That's not actually true. It's not. She might be the most frustrated about that in the moment, but when she talks to you, her frustration goes away, but she still is concerned about something else. So gentlemen, let her talk. Listen to the themes. Is it work? Is it kids? Is it... Money, is it family? And then say to her, okay, thank you so much. You know, I, I, I just really like knowing who you are. Out of all the things that you've talked about, help me. What can I pray first for you? That's spiritualizing it. What, what can I pray for you about, first of all? Secondly, what, out of all of that, what would you say is the most important to you right now? Because you could be confused. And that goes on the prayer list for what you pray for her about. And it just kind of rotates back into that situation. For ladies, um, what I want for you to um, think about is you engage your husband to support him. You engage him to support him, not criticize him, support him. Because if you can, if you can find a way to support him and identify what you do like in the relationship, he will tend to do more of that. So here's a little um, therapist uh, focus point for you. Whatever you tell your husband you like, he will tend to do more of that. But because we have boxes in our brains, I have a box of what Vanna likes. And when she puts something in that box and I want to do something she likes, I pull out that box and I do that thing that she likes. The problem is I'm not going to put any new things in there that I don't know for sure that she likes. So eventually she's not going to like what she likes because I've done it so much she's overdosing on it. I need to know multiple things that you like that I can put in the box that you tell me that you like. My wife does not like it when I bring her jewelry. That's why it's not in the Vanna Likes box. She likes gift cards. I don't like gift cards in the Vanna Likes box. I want real gifts that are an expression of me taking the time and finding them. My wife doesn't want that in the box. She wants gift cards in the box. So I break all the rules at Christmas and I go buy her a whole bunch of little cool stuff that I know that she wouldn't ever think of. And I put some of those in there. And she goes, oh, that's really nice. Where's my gift cards? Okay? I understand. My wife is super practical. She's low maintenance on money. She is because she's a farmer's daughter. I mean, they understand this. She's not a frou-frou, frilly kind of a lady. And she's been that way all along. I want her to be a little fancier, if you know what I'm talking about. I want her to dress up a little bit more. I want her to, you know, pamper herself a little bit. But that's not my wife. And so we're, we're fighting over what Vanna should like in her box. I know that sounds silly, doesn't it? But you know what I'm talking about. I want her to want more in her box. And, but what I need to know is what actually is in the box. So what I want you to, I want you to know, ladies, is you've got to tell your husband what you like in the box. 
because he just doesn't know. Because he's just guessing. He's throwing stuff at you. And half of it you don't like today, but you might have liked it last year. And you're thinking, I liked that last year. I don't want it now. I didn't know that. So it's okay for you to say, hey, you know, I just want you to know these are things that I really like that you do. Engage to support. Help him to be a better husband for you. No man will give you his heart because you criticized him. He'll comply, but he won't give you his heart. What you want is his heart and cooperation. So you do that by telling him what you want. So engage to support. Um, Second that I want to tell you, women interrupt people when people talk. I mean, you saw those little circles up there, those little chicks that were all talking to each other with that. Um, One of the things that you do need to practice is your husband has some things that he wants to tell you, but it's going to take longer than your patience will let you. And so you actually have to sit and not say anything so he can get it all the way out. There is nothing worse than interrupting a man when he's trying to tell you something personal because he'll stop talking to you. He'll just shut down and he won't speak to you anymore. And secondly, when you talk to him, you don't make the conversation about you. You always keep the conversation about him. Because what happens is if I say, you know, I just get really, really frustrated that our time is really being taken up with, you know, all the things that we have to. Yeah, yeah, I get really frustrated with all of that too. And this, these are the 17 different ways that I get frustrated. And then I won't talk about what I wanted to talk about, about what I'm frustrated about. And then Vanna wonders why it is I don't ever talk to her. I don't ever talk to you because you interrupt me all the time. Women build relationships conversationally, which means they talk on top of each other. Just watch them. And when they're all the way done, they all have a great time. But when you, when women talk to men that way, men stop talking because we talk and then we stop and somebody else talks and they stop and then we talk and they stop and then somebody else. It's that boxing match that's going on. So if you have trouble with that, get yourself a little ball, a little squeegee soft little ball or something. And whoever holds the ball gets to talk. You don't have the ball, you don't talk. It will kill you. (laughs) But your husband will be way more attached to you if he can get out what he wants to say. Can I get an amen, gentlemen? Don't say it too loud because you're hurting feelings. You know this is true. This is one of the biggest issues between men and women is that women love their husbands and interrupt them and they can't say what they want to say. So one of, one of the great gifts you can give to your husband is get that little token, whatever that is, hand it to him and say, how are you doing? And then pray. You, you had to pray and fast for three days to keep your mouth quiet. But listen to him. He will tell you something that you want to hear. I promise you. But he won't talk over you. He won't talk over you. He'll just quit. And then he just won't say anything because he can't get the whole thing out. Men speak slower than what women speak. So... Um, give him that opportunity, but don't um, talk about him. Don't talk over him. Um, number three, let him have a bad day without taking it personally. Let him have a bad day without taking it personally. Um, and I, I just want you to know, I think women are absolutely amazing. Um, and one of the goals that I want to say to you ladies is this. I am looking for women that I can convince need to be crowned with grace as the highest element of Christian womanhood. Grace. Grace. The ability to absorb and hand something back. Now, you know some graceful women, and you know that at times when you're not graceful, you can feel really bad about that. But here's what I want you to know. A graceful woman is unstoppable. But it also means that you learn how to take something and you don't 
deal with it personally and you hand back something really, really good. And I want to give to you, out of all of these things that we've talked about, one of the reasons to just lay this out is the end goal is your ability to exhibit grace. Because of all the women that I have ever seen, the ones that I have admired the most are the ones that are incredibly graceful under pressure. Not the ones that get angry under pressure, but the ones that are graceful. My goodness, I want to package that into a pill and hand that to everybody, including myself. There is something amazing about a graceful woman. And one of the ways that you're graceful is to absorb things and make sure that you hand back something good and that you don't over-personalize. Let your husband be a dense male syndrome and you love him, but you might even hand him the ball on that day and say, why don't you talk to me about how you're doing? And if he doesn't know what to say, then say, I might hand this to you periodically because I can see that there's something on your mind and I want you to know that it's okay for you to tell me what it is. Imagine a wife who does that. That would be incredible. The fourth thing that I want to suggest to you is that you pray for your husband. Some of the most significant times in my marriage, and I have not really told this to my wife very often, is when my wife can see that I am distressed. And I'm not distressed about her, but I am distressed about something. And she says, let me pray for you. Women will pray for their husbands much less than what husbands need to pray for their wives. It's not a reciprocal relationship, gentlemen. It's a giving relationship. But one of the most amazing times of my life is when we we had a really, really rough, rough, rough incident in our church where one of our ministers had an affair. It's the first time in the history of our church. I'm the head of personnel. I'm the face of the elders at our church, which means all the announcements that were done publicly, all the counseling that was needed to be done, all the personnel things I got to do with my friend who sat in our elders meetings week after week after week while he was in an affair with another church leader. It's a public thing. I'm not speaking out of turn. I can't tell you how much that hurt me. There there are no words to describe that. It's beyond the ability to describe. And my wife saw that. But I'm Peter Public, which means I get out my little elder's box and I act all. I mean, the church was okay. But part of the reason is, is that the elder wasn't distressed. Was I distressed and compromised? Yes. But publicly... I can't be. I can't grieve publicly. I can't say what I really think publicly because I'm not just anybody. I'm the mouthpiece of the leadership. And whatever the mouthpiece says, that's where the church emotionally goes, right? And you understand that about leaders. You, you know that. And so at home, I remember one time I was sitting on the bed and I just was like, you know, Van, I've, I've got to make the announcements. I don't even know I can. I don't know if I can get up in front of the church and make the announcement that needs to be made and hold it together. I just don't know I can do that. And she sat next to me on the bed and she put her arm around me and she prayed for me. That is a holy, sacred moment. And I want you to know it's one of the most meaningful moments in the last couple years I've had. It's meaningful because she looked at me and she said, I can see what this is doing and I'm your partner. I'm your partner. Ladies, Never underestimate the power of bringing your husband before the throne of grace when he is grappling with something because it's hard to be the leader and have it together all the time. And we feel that. So one of the things that I want for you to leave with, which I'm so glad you all are here, and I hope that you've learned at least one good thing, is when you walk out of these doors, the Holy Spirit is with you. And God is with you to to make your marriage much more than you ever dreamed. 
to allow for you to be a, a story of the redemption of God, to be able to, to absorb things that the world throws at you and even, even elements that happen within your own marriage. And we haven't, we haven't even talked about kids and things that happen with your children and allow for you to hand back the person of Christ. But in order to do that, you have to build in certain kinds of responses or certain kinds of methods and God will meet you in that. So I'm really calling all of you to a position of faith at the end. God said, if you have the faith, the size of a mustard seed, I will let you throw mountains into the sea. You all know that the size of a mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds. If you will just believe in me, if you will leave here and you will believe in me, you walk out those doors and you say, I'm not really sure about everything that Peter Buckland said. I'm not really sure exactly how I would talk about everything. But if you walk out of here and you say, but I believe that God is with us, your life will be maintained and transformed and held up in ways in your future that will just please you. And allow for you to be strong in the community. That's what my goal is for you. So you can catch a vision for that. And you can walk out of here with God. You've got some things to do. You've got some ideas. And you've got some, uh, hopefully some forward momentum. This is my last thing I want to tell you. It will take you roughly six weeks to be able to build a new structure. So if you made any decisions today. In fact, I'd like for you today and tomorrow to tell your spouse sometimes Sometimes these are the decisions that I made as a result of being here. I want you to know. But what I want, what I want you to know is that you will fail at doing those consistently. Because it will take you roughly six weeks of continually working on it before it begins to be second nature. So I hereby give you all permission to fail on Monday. I hereby give you permission to fight in the car on the way to church tomorrow. I hereby give you permission to say, I want to pray with you and then forget for three days. I give you permission. Okay, let's just lay that out on the table. The reason is, is whenever you try something new, you can't do it perfectly right away. This is why people quit. This is why people say, I want to play the piano. And then they take five lessons and they quit because they can't play the way that they want to initially. The same thing is true spiritually. So here's what I want you to do is I want you to, to commit to six weeks of learning how to do something and that you not only tell your spouse, but you tell somebody else who is here and that you will commit to each other when you see each other on Sunday to ask, how are you doing on the list that you made? That's accountability. How are you doing on the list that you made? Because some of you will completely quit your list within two weeks because you'll be frustrated. It will take you six weeks to begin to get that list going. And I want you to know You are among friends here. And we all understand that you can't be perfect right away. So let me close out with a word of prayer for you. And I know we've got some things that we're going to do here. But I would like to do a pastoral prayer for you. Um, I want to be your elder and treat you like my church and pray over you like you are my church. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. And that we can be moved out of darkness into light. And as your people, we are in your presence. And that we are with our brothers and sisters. And Lord, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. As Paul writes about in Romans chapter 12. 
And that this is our spiritual service of 24-7 serving you and ascribing you honor and worth. And Lord, as brothers and sisters, we link our arms together and we want to be the right kind of people, kingdom-minded people. And we want this church to be the right kind of church in this community, to be a church that has Christ on our mind and Christ in our hearts and Christ in our actions. And we pray, Lord, that you will transform us more and more perfectly into that image. God, we know that there are people who are here that are struggling right now in some way because we live in a world full of struggles. And we want to give you our understanding that we need each other. We want you to know that we want to link with people. We want you to know that you need to empower us. And we want our struggling brothers and sisters to know that they're among friends. God, there are people in here who are models, and we pray that those models will be more clear and that people can speak and and open up about your goodness and your grace and that others can follow. Lord, we ask that you will take our little bit of faith seed, that you would take what we have talked about and learned in some way, and you will grow it into an amazing plant called marriage, and that you will transform our histories and change our futures and allow for us to really become more and more the people that you want us to be. So that when you look at us as married couples, you see yourself looking back. You see a man and a woman and you who look back and look like you. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.